You're listening to SaaS Acquisition Stories, a podcast featuring the stories from both startup founders and buyers who have successfully gone through an acquisition process using Microacquire, the number one startup acquisition marketplace in the world. To date, Microacquire has helped hundreds of startups get acquired and has facilitated hundreds of millions in closed deal volume. Here's your host, Andrew Gazdecki. All right. I am with Sieva Kaczynski from Enduring Ventures. Sieva, thanks very much for joining me. How are you doing today? Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm up in Lake Tahoe this weekend. Um, I'll be here working remote all week. Nice. Well, hey, I want to jump right in. And I've been seeing just you on Twitter dropping these awesome threads. I've truly enjoyed them. How did how did you get into all this? Um, how did you get into to buying and selling companies? And maybe a, a better first question is, what is Enduring Ventures and how did how did all this start, man? Yeah, um, well, I'll start on the Enduring Ventures question. So Enduring is a long-term holding company. Uh, what we do is we buy cash flowing businesses at reasonable prices and we pair them with great operators and we run them and we hold them as a portfolio forever. That's our plan. Um, we frankly, you know, took a page out of Warren Buffett's book and how he structured Berkshire Hathaway in the early days. And as closely as possible, we've tried to model our business after that model. There's not a lot of hold codes out there, um, but we love it. And, and, you know, we love kind of the diversity of thought and the diversity of businesses that we own as well. Um, and as far as like how I got into it, I have always been an entrepreneur or founder. So for the last 15 years, I've started a variety of businesses. I used to run a venture capital fund. Most recently, I had, I had built a network of clinical trial sites. So basically, we paired with private practice physicians, and we helped large pharmaceuticals run clinical trials in the offices of these doctors. So it was a marketplace model and our customers were like Pfizer and Novartis and Innovaderm, and they would pay us 10 to $20,000 per patient to recruit a patient. Uh, we would split that with the doctor. Um, so it was a great business. I ended up selling it. Um, and I think, you know, that plus my time at business school opened my eyes to um, what you can build if you're acquiring companies as opposed to founding them. I had always been the founder. I'd always started from zero, you know, um, one person alone in a garage or working with a friend uh, in, out of our bedroom at first and then building up that company, sometimes raising a little bit of capital. But um, I think through that experience, as well as, um, you know, just meeting people from the MA world and just being inspired by Warren Buffett, I learned that you could acquire a business, um, a, a really well-established company with a great brand. Um, and in our case, we do so from retiring owners. Usually you could buy the business, you could place a leader, or you could promote management and you could really help that business grow and sometimes modernize, um, and, and really hold it as a portfolio. And you don't have to go from that kind of zero to one phase. You can really start, uh, with a business that's fully functioning, with a team in place and a brand. And I think there's uh, there's something really attractive about that for us. Yeah, well, you're definitely doing something right. Um, so I was looking at your portfolio and we were talking about this um, before we started recording, but you own such a diverse group of 
businesses. Um, what was like, what, can you walk me through the first business that you acquired? Like what was the, the business? Um, what were you feeling? You know, I got a, I got a, a sense that maybe like you just jumped in and you just said, I'm doing this. And then obviously you've acquired businesses after that, but what was the first business and, and how'd that go? Yeah. So rewinding it to the beginning, Xavier and I, who've been long-term friends, we met as when we were running different companies, we stayed in touch for many years. I really I, looked up. I, I love that dude. I love, he's, he's awesome. So he's really incredible. He's just such a great human. Uh, he's just like a genius in the way that he thinks and the way that he works. Um, and he's also just like one of the kindest, fairest people I've ever interacted with. So I feel super blessed to be working with him all the time. Um, we had been friends, you know, I, I really respected him from afar. And then when he hired a CEO at his previous business and wanted to leave, we decided that we were going to work together. Um, and the first rendition of Enduring Ventures or our first kind of pitch to our friends and family who'd uh, invested a little bit of capital in, in us is that we're going to buy boring, quote unquote, you know, not kind is, of sexy tech is businesses. That, is that how you pitched it? Where you're like, hey, we're going to buy some boring ass businesses. Like, are you excited about this? Like, yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. And that's ex exactly how we pitched it. Most of our friends are like tech founders or tech investors. So they're way over extended investing in tech, but but they are aware that there's all these great cash flow companies, all these blue collar businesses that generate a lot of cash. They're familiar with the Berkshire story. So for them, it was a diversification. It was a way to invest in a plumbing company without having to run it themselves. So that's exactly how we pitched it. Um, you know, we also pitched the concept that I think a lot of people are familiar with, is which is that the baby boomer population is retiring. It's the largest population in the US. And that means that there are millions of businesses that are that need to be sold, really high quality businesses, which means people like us can kind of have our pick and really pick the businesses that we feel fit our model and fit our pricing structure. Um, so that was our pitch from day one. Um, we are now owners of 12 businesses, um, two of them or three of them actually are tech companies. We also have a venture studio. So we've started a couple businesses, but 90% of what we do is we buy businesses that are generating cash flow um, from retiring owners. That's really most of, most of what we do. So, to your first question or to your question, you know, the first business that we bought was more opportunistic and was less along our original thesis. Um, we had been looking for businesses to buy for like six months at the time. We had a few different industries that we we're particularly keen on. One of them was broadband, which we did end up. Uh, buying businesses in. But our first business actually just fell in our lap. We had been longtime users of UpCouncil. And, and I know you're familiar with the brand and the company. Yeah, I, I love, I refer you guys all the time. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and for those who aren't aware, UpCouncil is a marketplace for legal services. So instead of hiring an expensive law firm, you can go to UpCouncil, place a job, and really high quality lawyers that have been reviewed by others will bid on your job. And usually you'll say, you know, I had been using it before we owned the business and I had saved anywhere between 50 to 70% off um, what a normal legal bill would be. So we got a notification or I received an email just like any other customer 
that said up council is shutting down. It was from the CEO at the time. Um, they had raised, you know, somewhere around 20, 25 million dollars from some really great VCs. But I think they didn't achieve the kind of escape velocity that maybe it would require to go on and continue raising capital after that. Things like Airbnb and Uber. And it's a pretty common story. You know, they had built a really incredible business. They built an incredible brand and a great technology platform. They, they really had an amazing CTO, but they just didn't get through kind of to, they didn't really cross the chasm to that next level. So unfortunately, they were shutting it down. And we reached out to them in order to see, hey, is there an opportunity for us to buy this business, to kind of carry on your legacy? You've obviously built something really useful here because both me and my business partner have used it. And it sounds like you've used it as well. Um, so we did work something out with the founders. We bought the business um, on a very friendly structure, I think, to both sides, frankly, given the situation. Um, and that was our first business that we bought. And I'm happy to talk about the ones after that because they were a little bit more uh, more planned, but that one just kind of fell fell onto us from the skies. Nice. That that's a great business that I can definitely vouch for. Anyone who hasn't gone on up counsel and need legal services, I feel like I'm dropping you like a paid ad right now. But um, that's a good first one. So do the music. So how did you? Okay. So why didn't you just take to 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 tech, why did you move into um, Main Street businesses? If that one was going so well, I assume, and I, I know it's going well now. Um, I think you've done a fantastic job um, growing the business and uh, keeping it alive and improving it. Um, what what made you decide to diversify even more into um, maybe some of the other companies that, that are completely different? Yeah, it, it all comes down to purchase multiple and cash flow, right? We have a unique lens on the world. Our business model is cash flow first. So everything we think about is how do we create an engine that generates cash flow that we can then reappropriate or move in a direction that we want. We don't want to buy an expensive business that we then flip a few years later at a higher multiple. That's really not our model. And there's a lot of firms that do do that. I would say first, you know, the thing that allows us to do this is like for the upcouncil story, Xavier and I were not involved as operators. The real operators were KJ and her team. She's the CEO of the business. She's, in, she's the CEO of the whole tech platform where we now own three companies. And because we have such high quality leadership, we can actually look across different industries as opposed to having our hands tied and having to really uh, just focus on the day-to-day -day operations of the business. So it's that partnership between us as investors and our operators that allow us to go into different industries in the first place. Um, and then back to my comment about generating cash flow, you know, if you buy a software business, and I'm sure you know folks have seen it, let's say you buy a 3 million ARR software business, maybe you're paying three to five times yearly revenue maybe cash flow is like $500,000 a year. So your multiple on cash flow is pretty high. Your relative multiple of what you're paying for on cash flow is pretty high. And for the right types of acquirers, that can be an incredible acquisition. They may have a vision on how to grow the business, or they may have a vision on how to package it together and sell it to somebody else. But for us, it really has to make sense on a cash on cash return. 
And we really like to buy um, at valuations that are three to five times cash flow. So if a business does a million dollars of cash flow per year, we really want don't want to pay more than three to five million dollars to acquire it. And you really can't get that in most tech businesses unless you're very creative about structuring or unless you're doing what we do now, which is you're doing these VC fallen angels. And we've done a couple of them and we've actually redirected our focus in tech to just focus on businesses like UpCouncil that have good revenue, uh, that don't quite have the profits to support it, and that we can turn around and create a cash flow engine from them. Because in those situations, we can buy it at a more reasonable valuation. So hopefully gotcha. that, that answers it. It does. Can you walk me through all the businesses you own? Like I know UpCouncil and then a pool company, and then you mentioned plumbing. Yeah. Give me the, so we, give me the list. So we own 12 businesses today. We really think about it as three main platforms, um, as well as our pool construction business, which isn't a platform. That business is called Dolphin Pools. It's in Phoenix, Arizona. We're very love proud Dol- of it. Love dolphins. Yes, we also love dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> I think any day you see a dolphin in the ocean, it kind of like makes your week, you know, you're just calm you're happy they're wonderful creatures so oh, I, 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 dude i'm as a surfer um if you see a dolphin in the water it's either the best thing or the scariest thing because yeah. uh a, a shark's tail is up straight and a dolphin's is curved and sometimes you can see it out in the water and you're like is that a shark or a fucking dolphin yeah um but yeah, sorry, I digress. No, totally. I, I didn't even know you were a surfer. I also love to surf. So uh, that'd be a fun activity sometime. Where uh, where, where do you surf? Uh, so I, I was in San Francisco and I usually go to like Lindemar, for example. Um, but I went to college in Santa Barbara. So I'd surf a few times a week there. And now I'm in LA, which when I haven't surfed, because I just moved here about a month ago. Nice. I grew up in uh, San Clemente. So that's I basically was forced. Instead of summer camp, I would go to like beach camp, or like Doheny or like uh, San Onofre, if you're familiar with those spots. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. I get it. But, you're like an incredible surfer and I'm like barely standing up on longboards. Um, but when you, you grow up in surfing. SoCal and you try to surf in NorCal, you get in the water and you're like, this is, am I in like Alaska? Like what the hell is yeah. going on? <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah. well, keep walking me through um, the different businesses because this is fascinating. You have, you have, you know, very strong, you know, profitable tech businesses, but you also have, uh, you know, main street businesses that I assume are also very profitable. Like that's incredible to be able to manage like that diverse, like those are two very polar opposite type businesses. Um, so what yeah, else? So I'll fill you in. So, so across the 12 businesses, the three main platforms are broadband. We own four broadband businesses. So what we do is we provide internet to people's homes in like second tier cities or semi-urban cities um so that just means we don't focus on san francisco and new york where you know um kind of internet access or fast internet access is pretty easily available but we do focus on the rest of the country where in a lot of places you really can't even have a zoom meeting or you can't have you know like a like an online course or you certainly can't do any online gaming so we focus on those areas we've bought four businesses and we basically provide uh, the same you know, a competitor service to like a Comcast or Spectrum, but using fixed wireless. 
Um, so that's the broadband business. It's called Rango Broadband. Um, then we own a business called Enduring Technologies. Uh, it has, and that, that's the business that I mentioned earlier, that's run by KJ. And it has three businesses within it, Up Council um, and uh, ERA, which is an accounting software. And then the third business, I don't think we've announced yet, but it's an enterprise design software. It's, a, it's another one of our fallen angel turnaround businesses. Um, the third platform is um, HVAC and plumbing. So heating, air conditioning, and plumbing. We provide services to home residents and commercial businesses in three states. Um, and then, like I said, the last business is our, our pool construction business. So that's all, all, that's the summary of all 12 of them. And then we also own a small, actually growing now, digital ad agency. Damn. So how, like, how do you, I mean, you mentioned this, I'm just like trying to wrap my head around this because it's so incredible. Like, you know, it's hard enough for someone to operate, you know, one business, but you have these businesses in such different industries, like dramatically different. Um, so I guess for people that are listening who are thinking like, this is extremely interesting, like, how do you manage this? Is it just basically from the structure that you built where you put in an operator and then uh, you basically step back and then oversee the business from there? Is that? Yeah, we, we really look for world-class operators first and foremost. Um, people who've been doing this for 20, ideally 30 years that are looking for their next thing. Maybe they want to start a business. Maybe they want to be an owner in a business. Um, and that's really our business model is finding those people because it's really all about the people. It's really all about these leaders. They run the businesses as their own. You know, they're the face, they're the president, they, they're co-owners in the business. They oftentimes bring in their own executive team. So I, I certainly, you know, would not have the guts to go into many of these businesses, you know, for example, like the broadband business without a world-class operating team. And we really have put together, uh, or Martin there, who is the CEO of a telecom company, who was the CEO of a telecom company for 20 years. He came and he put together a world-class team in order to do this, uh, to run this play, run this playbook in the US and really build up a challenger ISP brand. Um, you know, I would say a couple of things. One is that we really look at businesses that, are simple to understand. There's a lot of businesses, there's thousands and thousands of companies per year that we'll look at and we'll say no to um, just because it's too complex, right? There's too many moving pieces for us to really get our head around, or maybe it doesn't have the right cash flow profile. Um, and it's and the last thing I would say is like, you know, we're probably a little bit more comfortable because between Xavier and I, we've ran businesses in like six or seven different industries. And we've been the CEO or CFO of those businesses, um, which gives us some understanding of like how to operate a company, how to be the backstop if we need to come in and support some of the CEOs. We haven't really had to do that, but it gives us um, that experience, that operator experience just gives us a little bit more confidence, as you can imagine. Nice. Are the are the main tree businesses located in close proximity to you or are they uh, nationwide? They're not. We actually, we both live in California and we don't own any businesses in California yet. So they're, they're all nationwide. That is freaking incredible. Good for you, man. All right. So 
you talk to a lot of businesses looking to sell. You mentioned you talk, you look at thousands of businesses. Um, what are like, you know, some common tips or just, you know, things that you look for um, when buying a business, you know, as someone who might be looking to sell their business, what would you tell them based on just everything that you've seen and ones that you passed on um, or how they could, if they thought maybe Enduring Ventures was a good fit, like what um, really kind of stands out um, compared to the ones that you pass on? Yeah, there's there's a few different, I think, important questions in there. Um, the first one was maybe advice to people who would like to sell their business at some point in the future. Um, I'd say my first piece of advice, and I think most founders get this wrong, most business owners get this wrong, is everybody waits until the year before they want to sell or sometimes just a few months before they want to sell to engage a broker or to start setting the business up in order to do it. I actually recommend at, at the very least thinking about your sale process three years before you plan to do it. And ideally even four or five years if you're not in a rush, right? Because you can really optimize your business for the sale and you can reverse, and, and I tell this a lot to owners, you know, that we talk to, because we don't always buy their business. Uh, we say, look, if you want to sell in the next three to five years, talk to some investment bankers in your space, talk to some brokers, talk to some people who've sold their business, even if you're like three to five years out and learn what is it the buyer's looking for, understand what the multiples are, do your own wealth planning, all wealth and tax planning. That's so important because you know, ultimately, like if you get it wrong, you could be paying more than 50% of your sale price to taxes. But if you get it right, you can really decrease that number. And that's your life's work. That's so much effort that goes into it. So you should be planning and preparing. And I think I understand why, because founders are busy running their own company and, you know, they don't have time to do all the strategic planning or they don't have time to think about it. Yeah. But. You know, you know, that's um I like how you bring that up because that's that's somewhat exactly um what I did with my first business. We were actually um uh located in San Francisco, but we were we were bootstrapped, so we were kind of like a purple cow in the city. And when the lease came up, I was getting tired in the business, and so we moved it down to San Diego and we started focusing on profitability, operating the company more, basically preparing it for sale. And what we did is we started creating relationships with buyers literally like three years out. And then when it came time to actually, you know, sell a business, like it was in a position which I would consider, you know, ready to go to market. Um, and we just basically reached out to people that were interested. So that is, that's, I like that tip. Um, Cause you can benefit from things like QSBS if you plan, which is something I recommend all entrepreneurs look up which is a, as you know, a tax um, relief against federal taxes. So that I, I haven't heard that one from another person. So that's, that's a great piece of advice. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you started uh, years before you were thinking about it. Did you meet with like any wealth planners or tax advisors ahead of time? I did. I have um, an accountant that I had worked with and still work with to this day, we set up. So the way we set up QSBS was literally, I think they were going to close the loophole. Um, this was like a decade ago. Um, but I heard about it December 21st or something like that. 
And we literally, we were in LLC at the time. We scrambled to basically, I've, I read an article that was like attention investors, like until um, the end of 2012 or something like that, um, you know, this QSBS tax-free thing can save you a boatload on taxes when you sell the business or when um, your investment is liquidated. So we reincorporated to a C corp within four days. And then uh, there's certain qualifications that you have to meet. Like usually um, I'm not an expert here, but most venture backed businesses don't apply for, can't apply for QSBOs because you have too much capital on the balance sheet. So you have to have a certain minimum like you can't have millions of dollars on the balance sheet or you don't qualify. So we never did that. Um, so we would actively deploy capital into the business. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of, um, you know, lining everybody up, um, we did work with an investment bank prior. So that was where I um, got all of my leads essentially. And then we got offers at the time, but, still had gas in the tank and their minimum fee was 800,000. And I was like, I don't want to pay that. And so basically waited for the two year tail to end. And then that's when we really kind of started getting serious about preparing the business for sale, basically just reached out to the old leads and sold the business. That's a perfect outcome. And you didn't have to pay the, the banker fees, which is really nice. Um, the QSBS thing that you, you noted is so important for entrepreneurs. And I think it's just like an important driver of our economy, of our startup economy as a whole. I think it's an incredible rule. I hope they keep it around. We do have QSBS designation for Enduring Ventures, which is a C-Corp um, and a holding company. And, and we were pretty strategic about making sure we set it up in the right way such that we could get that designation because it's a it's a pretty magical one for, for founders and investors. Um, yeah. Nice. So let's go back to the, the three prong question I threw at you. Sorry about that. Um, uh, what are like some mistakes that, um, you see founders? So we're already in market. I'm talking to enduring ventures. What are some mistakes or just yellow flags that you see pretty commonly that could be easily avoided? I'd say, so So again, it just depends on the buyer, right? So I'll caveat with that. I know there are buyers that care more about growth and there's some buyers that care about product. We really care about cash flow. Um, we do want to see growth, um, at least a little bit of growth because it shows us the right momentum. It shows us that there's product market fit. But for us, we're really, the first thing we're looking at is what is your, um, what is your gross profit? Right or what is your revenue to cash flow potential? Um, and if that's really high, this isn't always the case. But if that's really high, that's often an indicator for us that this is a healthy business with pricing power, with high uh, revenue or high profit relative to employee number requirement. Um, so that's that's what gets gives us a second look. So another part of preparing is look, you might be in a fast growth mode. But if you want to sell to private equity, you might be in a fast growth mode, which means that you're not focusing on profits, which is totally reasonable. But as you're preparing to sell, if you decide that you want to sell to private equity, you need to be able to show, oftentimes you need to be able to show that you're generating profit. This, this business can generate cash flow and it isn't just a cash hog, 
right? It isn't just taking, sucking out all the cash in order to stay still or to just grow a little bit. So I'd say that's, that's one thing about preparing for founders is if you're a year out or you're two years out and you've had zero uh, profit this whole time, which many businesses do or negative profit, consider showing profit or considering structuring your business so that you can make it very clear to the buyer that these two levers, if you move them, your business will be really profitable, which is a good story to tell to, to potential acquirer. That's exactly what they do. Like I literally, um, and I had a buddy who was an investment banker. This is a true story. And I told him, I was like, all right, I got, I think we have someone who like is like, we had an IOI in place and, you know, it was, it had a term basically, you know, we'll check back in in 30 days. After 30 days, it was getting a little wobbly in terms of interest. I think another business popped up. And I recorded a video with an Excel sheet showing like, hey, if you raise prices for customers, this is kind of like I modeled out like an opportunity. Um, and that kind of changed the conversation completely just by pointing out opportunities like we haven't. So I guess one thing, I don't know, would you agree with this? Like, you know, the more you can kind of walk through buyers, like potential opportunities within your business that you haven't executed on, um, would you see that as like a negative or a benefit? Yeah, I think you're you're totally uh, you're, you're you're totally right. The way you did it, um, I see that as a huge positive, right? Because you, everybody knows that you as an owner, you have limited capacity and you have limited time, so you can't do everything that you wish for the business. But you also have the best understanding of the levers you could pull in order to grow this company or make it more profitable. So question, you know, in our first call with many sellers, we will oftentimes ask them what, you know, if you were running this business for 10 more years, which is kind of our minimum, you know, we want to run companies for forever. Um, if you were going to run it afterwards, what would you do? What are the main levers you would pull in order to grow it? And, and, you know, despite them not executing on those sometimes, they usually have a very good sense of what needs to happen. Nice. I agree. Well, I, I could probably talk to you for, for hours, but um, I'm, uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up with uh, two more questions. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do it. Um, actually, actually three, because I, I got one I have to ask you. Um, so where, I mean, 10 years from now, where do you see Enduring, Enduring Ventures um, at? That's a really broad question. Maybe it's like the next Berkshire Hathaway. Like how, how aggressive are you going? Like how big are you thinking? Or are you going to be um, kind of slow and steady? Like what, what's kind of like your goal with Enduring Ventures over the next decade? Um, you know, we, I, I guess certainly not the next Berkshire Hathaway after 10 years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think. Many people probably know this, but Warren Buffett built most of the value, 90% of the value of Berkshire today after age 55, I think. And are you gonna you gonna keep going after 55? I would like to do this forever. Yeah. Xavier and I would, would like to do this until we die or retire. And I don't think I'm a retire type of person, so I plan to do it forever. Um 10 years from now, you know, for us it's kind of slow and steady, right? Every year we plan to add a few new businesses to our portfolio. We're happy to sit around and wait for the right opportunities. You know, we if, if we don't see things within the price or the returns that we're expecting, um, then we're just going to pass and wait and allow our businesses to operate. 
The nice thing about doing what we do now is all of our businesses generate good cash flow. So we're not a startup. We're never under the gun to kind of perform. The only board members are Xavier and I, so we don't have outside investors that are pressuring us to do anything. Um, but for us, you know, we, we love this. We're both business nerds. So we want to continue buying businesses, compounding over a period of time. And 10 years out, you know, I'm sure if you just extrapolate what we've done today, um, it'll just be a much bigger version um, of what we have today. The beauty of compounding. Um, so the, the question I wanted to ask next is um, what, what area of your portfolio are you um, most bullish on? Is it, um, uh, let's just call it like, you know, fast tech businesses or, you know, Main Street businesses? Where do you think you're going to spend the most of your focus over the next you know, year or two? Um, you know, that's a really tricky question because, and let's, let's, let's make this even a funner question. Let's, let's yeah. assume we hit a recession, like a recession hits, um, where are you looking main street or, or digital? So I think main street business, you know, the thing that we love about main street businesses that we engage in like HVAC plumbing broadband is that if a recession hits people in Arizona still need their air conditioner. They're going to pay for it, you know, or it's like hundred yeah. degrees out. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People will sooner, you know, pay for their AC or, uh, or their plumbing or their broadband, then maybe they'll pay for rent. I think so. You know, I certainly would feel that way. So we feel like those businesses are relatively recession proof. And that's why we that's partially why we love them. They throw off a lot of cash flow and they're recession resistant. So, you know, we are just going to be doubling down on any business that fits that uh, that fits those two levers. They're recession resistant and they generate a lot of cash flow. Um, we're addicted. We love it. It's super fun. I love interacting, especially with uh, with like blue collar business owners. Um, it's it's really a ton of fun for us. Um, on the tech opportunity side, like, look, if a recession hits or if we go, if we continue to slide deeper into this, uh, I mean, we've already seen tech stocks drop by over 50, many tech stocks drop by over 50%. And I think we've all seen the venture capital environment pull back. So we're, there's probably going to be more opportunities like up council and our other businesses. That's the VC fallen angels, the businesses that have raised a lot of capital, but maybe haven't grown into, haven't fully grown into the scale that they should be at. So I imagine there's going to be more of these opportunities where founders and VCs are looking for a soft landing for their business, um, as opposed to having to shut it down after all these years. Uh, and, but I think, you know, I think that'll take another year or two. So in the meantime, um, we're definitely looking at the, the kind of blue collar, um, main street, uh, cash flow generating businesses. Right on. Yeah. Well, Sieva, uh, I feel like I just talked to a, a, a brilliant mind and, uh, really, really enjoy. I, I learned a ton, dude. So, um, I, next time you're on the ocean, hit me up. I'd love to serve with you, but, um, congrats on all the success with everything. I'm rooting for you all the way. If people want to learn more about enduring ventures or just, um, your story, where can they uh, find you? Um, you can either go on our website. It's just enduring.ventures and reach out. We love to hear from you. Um, or Xavier and I are pretty active on Twitter. For me, it's just at my first name and last name at Sieva Kaczynski. 
And I usually like to share breakdowns of businesses there that we're looking at or things that we've learned along the way. So hopefully it's, uh, it's helpful to some folks that come check it out. And yeah, Andrew, this was great. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm obviously talking to someone who's grown some amazing companies before. I'm a big fan of MicroAcquire. I tell everybody about it. I usually, I'll scope out deals there every once in a while. We haven't bought anything yet, but I think it's just a matter of time before we use it. So congrats on building another awesome company. Right on, man. I appreciate that. All right, dude. Cheers. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of the SaaS Acquisition Stories podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, make sure to like and follow on your preferred channel. And if you know a friend or colleague that would benefit from hearing this conversation, please share it with them. For more information on MicroAcquire and how we can help you start conversations that lead to an acquisition in just 30 days, check us out at microacquire.com. We'll see you next time.